lob it up to Rudy, put it down. Mitchell three. Yes! The rookie comes alive! Hello, everybody, once again. Hopefully that wasn't way too loud. Uh, my microphone's doing some auto-adjusting things. But hello and welcome to Hashtag Jazz. Had to take a, we took an unintentional hiatus because technology doesn't like me and I lost my recording file last week. So uh, unless you want to just hear Trey's side of the conversation and not mine, I could have posted it, I guess. But... Would have yeah, sounded weird. Very well. That would have sounded what? really weird. <laughs> yeah, that would have sounded weird. Just, just you talking, like respond to something I say. Well, yeah, it would just uh, be it would be silence, and then me just giving my two cents about something, and they're like, "Wait, they're tra-, you know they <laughs> trying to piece it together as they go." Yeah, I I tend to talk for a little longer, so there's probably there'd be like forty five second to a minute clips of just dead silence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, uh, maybe it was good to take a break because there wasn't as much good that happened this week. Obviously not terrible for the Jazz. Uh, Looking at, they they went on a four-game win streak thereabouts during our, uh, I think I'm trying to find this good. I have way too many tabs open right now. Need to minimize your tabs. Well, I've got... We've got them all open so I can reference them as we go throughout our uh, throughout our episode today. Um, so yeah, so they, they beat the Sixers, the Bucks, the Warriors. That was actually our was the was the 76ers and Bucks that we were going to talk about. Those those two big wins there. They did lose to the Clippers. Um, then they had the big win over the Warriors and. Good win over the Nets, but this this last one, the the loss to the Grizzlies was kind of harsh because the Grizzlies are supposed to be kind of one of those uh, lower part of the league teams. They're rebuilding, uh, you know, they're developing Ja Morant, who's probably one of my favorite young younger players, at least in terms of rookies. Yeah, he's really uh, good. Yeah, leave Jaron Jackson Jr.'s down there. He's another uh, pretty nice young piece they've got there at power forward. Uh, but still, that, that's a team that you feel like you should be beating. And it also kind of highlighted Utah's struggles on the road. And I hadn't really realized it until now, just because of how good the Jazz have been. You, you don't tend to dwell on the negatives. But as I as I looked back, you look at their games on the road. I'll just list them off. So their first road game at the Lakers. They lost 95-86, their lowest point total of the season. Uh, at Phoenix Suns, they won by one point, which so far doesn't actually look like that bad of a loss because um, the Suns are actually the fifth seed right now. They're actually right behind Jazz in terms of record. But still, that's that's their uh, third lowest point total. Uh, then at Sacramento Kings, they lost by one. Um, then at the Clippers... They lost 105.94 as their second lowest point total. Uh, at the Warriors, um, they won 122 to 108. Uh, that's probably really what should be happening. That's probably their best road performance, but it was also against the worst team. Mm-hmm. And then at Memphis, uh, this past game, a 107-106 loss, which 
let me do point totals here. So in terms of um, lowest point totals, their three worst point totals have been on the road and five of their worst seven are on the road. Funnily enough, though, their, their highest point total is also on the road. So a uh, bit of an outlier there, but oh, can't work a chair. But overall, in terms of a trend, Utah's offense is really struggling on the road. And maybe that's I don't know, maybe that's the biggest thing the Jazz need to fix, because at home, the offense is doing fine. They're probably averaging close to 108, 109 points. Just trying to do some quick math in my head, at observing all those scores. Do you think this is a worrying trend? Or is it is it something that kind of the early season will probably be able to fix? I think it'll be fixed. I mean, it, I don't know. It's weird because statistically, sure, we look better at home than we do on the road. But I'm still not – I mean, we haven't even seen this team really put together other than the Warriors game a really good, strong offensive outing, to be honest. I mean, we haven't – there's only been so many times that – the blender offense has really shown. I mean, a lot of what we're doing, yeah, we're getting our, you know, pick and rolls to initiate um, open looks or a different pass to another open guy or getting Rudy rolling to the basket. But, I mean, maybe it's just I'm not paying attention, but I just don't I don't see that high-powered offense that this team is capable of yet. But the nice thing is with the, with the beginning of the season – I mean, we're still young into this. There's plenty of room to fix this. So uh, I wouldn't say I'm worried quite yet. And, you know, everyone's going to go through growing pains. And that's unfortunately what we're doing. And the nice thing is we're doing, you know, we've got a really solid record. Yeah, I think that's that's the uh, important thing to remember is that even after the, the Grizzlies loss and even with a lot of these things, the Jazz are still 8-4. and four. They're fourth in the conference, which... You, you can't really take too much, um, put too much stock into the standings when we're, you know, 10, 15 games into the season, or, you know, 12 in the case of the Jazz, but, you know, most teams are, are between 10 and 15. Um, but it, it is something, obviously, they have to work on, because you look at, I mean, I, I just pulled up the split so I can get some uh, official numbers. So, obviously, Utah's 6-0 at home. Two and four on the road. They're scoring 108 points, allowing 98 uh, at home. So it's a 10.3 point differential. On the road, they're scoring 100.8 and allowing 100.0. So hmm. that's like a negative 1.2. Hmm. Um, so, so defensively, they're actually still doing pretty good. It is that offense. Like you said, this this offense hasn't really reached its potential. I guess we all kind of figure, you know, when we saw some Mike Conley games and we were still seeing Boyan doing really well, that maybe the Jazz had just suddenly figured it out. Uh, but they haven't really. They haven't figured this out because, you know, they are, they're scoring decently at home, but they're not figuring it out on the road. It, it is curious because normally you attribute – Poor performances on the road to young teams. The Jazz aren't young. and Not anymore. You, you can't make that excuse. That excuse hasn't been, you know, true for the Jazz for like two or three years. 
Mm-hmm. And especially now, because you're looking at Mike Conley, Boyan Bogdanovich, and Rudy Gobert as, as you know, three experienced players. You know, 12 years for Mike Conley. Uh, where's Boyan at? Five years for Boyan, six for Rudy Gobert, and now Donovan Mitchell's in his third year. So experience is, that can't be the problem. Again, it just it's just something that's weird. I don't know, maybe this team just hasn't figured out how to take its performance on the road because normally we've been saying like they'd figure it out on offense, but there's not really an explanation for why the Jazz aren't figuring it out on offense on the road but are doing okay at home. Still haven't reached their potential at home, but they're just doing okay. I don't think they've reached their potential at all, to be honest. I mean, the ceiling yeah. for this team is so high. But uh, naturally, you're going to play better in front of your home fans. That's just the way it is. Um, yeah. And with the Memphis game, there was a lot of emotion for Mike Conley specifically. So, you know, he, he didn't shoot the best, but it hasn't been what he started the season out with, where it's, it's just atrocious. So, yeah. Well, well I think that. Uh... You know, with Memphis, you'd think that you still have an entire team. Just you can't really explain away Jazz losses anymore because of one bad performance. We we talked about this in our our lost podcast about how Donovan Mitchell went like eight of twenty two or something like that against the Bucks, who are I think third in the East right now, and they won. Donovan Mitchell with like nineteen points on twenty two shots. They won because uh, Boyan hit a game winner, which will be played on jazz broadcast for the next ever. It was, it was really weird just seeing that over and over every time I watch a jazz game, but you know, Boyan had his 33, Rudy Gobert had a good game, uh, especially defensively. And then Mike Conley had a pretty decent game. Mm-hmm. So with Memphis, you think, well, you know, Mike Conley's not doing so well, but the, the rest of the team has to show up. And especially on offense, this team has to be able to step up more. Because uh, right now, you know, Donovan is doing his thing. He's getting, you know, that kind of dark horse MVP talk that is nice, but he's never going to win MVP for a variety of reasons, at least this year. Maybe we'll see down the road. But, you know, he, he's really doing his part. He's having a career year. Boyan is having a spectacular year. Um, he's had a few off nights, though. But we really need to see it from a lot of other guys. And it's not just Mike Conley. Uh, you're seeing Joe Ingles has just, I, I don't know what happened to Joe Ingles. You know, the, the six point, was it 6.8, there's just so much info on this table. 6.8 points per game doesn't really bother me. Just because we're getting volume points from other places. It's the 34% overall shooting and 28% from three. When Joe Ingles puts up a three-point shot, I'm no longer confident that it's going down which really troubles me yeah no it is for sure i mean he's now the sixth man and i mean even when he was a starter last you know the last especially last season he was a lot more tentative it's bizarre um but i i mean maybe maybe age is caught up to him you know i don't i don't know but even if even at the age of 32 your confidence shouldn't go anywhere in your shot if anything you should your confidence should increase it's like oh, i've hit this many times but yeah i don't know and the troubling thing is is yeah it's i don't know if it's systemic or what but looking at our three point percentage just on the season thus far is 36% 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a we 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 were shooting better from three last season with a different roster. Give me a second. I'll be able to tell you if that was correct or not. I mean, we were uh, like we were we were so good at our shot quality. We were so good at shot distribution last season, and that's just not there this year. It's just it's it's, it's bizarre. <clears throat> so we shot thirty five point six percent last year, so slightly worse. Uh, same rank. We finished tenth in the league last year in three hmm. point percentage. This year, the Jazz are tenth at that thirty six percent, which. While, yes, is technically better, but I think when we envisioned this roster, when we saw the people that the Jazz were bringing in, I think we imagined that we'd improve by more than, um, I think it's 0.7%. Yeah. That, that's what it is. It was 35.6. Last year, we're at 36.3. And relative to the league, we haven't moved up one bit. I, I think... We imagined it going closer to maybe 37 or 38, which would be, uh, I don't have the league three-point percentage ranked in front of me, but I imagine that would be a little closer to uh, uh, the top of the league. Because that, that was one of the things last year is that, especially when you get late into the season of playoffs, the Jazz, you know, to hang with the best teams in the league, they needed to hit, you know, open shots, they weren't hitting them. A lot of the guys weren't just weren't hitting them. And now, for some reason, we're seeing a similar thing. You know, Mike Conley started the year off breaking a bunch of shots. Joe Ingles is breaking just about everything. But, I, you know, we are getting really good production out of Boyan. Royce O'Neal's hitting 48%. So there's some positives. It's just a matter of when will things pick up or if they will pick up in some cases. Because that right there, it feels like some of the same things from last year, they were keeping the Jazz from being making that jump from good to great. You know, that hardest jump of all of them from good playoff team to championship team. It feels like some of those same things are holding the Jazz back. They seem to make all the right moves. You know, they're Barton Conley, they're Barton Boyan. They, they seem like good signings at this point. But, you know, the Jazz are a good team. They're 8-4. and four. They're, you know, right in the mix. They could be a title contender. They've got a potential all-star on this roster. The question is, we know this team can. I think that's one of the differences between last year and this year is that last year I didn't really have the confidence that the team could make that jump in season. With the roster they had, I didn't think they could make that jump from good to great. This roster, I believe, can make that jump. They just have to show improvements just with who they are. Based on who we know these players are, based on their past performances, the Mike Conley, Joe Ingles, and all that. They are better. question is, can they get better? And that's something that we're just going to have to kind of wait and see, which is it's as frustrating as it is because there's not really an explanation to many of these other than that's just how it be how it be how it do yeah. <laughs> um no i you're absolutely right i mean it's so hard not to fall into the idea that you know or not the idea but it's it's so hard not to fall into um you know not panic but 
start the, these doubts and trying to figure out what the hell is going on because you know the season is still young and the fact that the Jazz are in the position ranking wise that they are bodes well for what a future could be. I mean, the pieces are there. All these guys are super talented. They you know they they put up numbers that they're gonna get back to it and like Bojan the other night put up 20 quietly I didn't even know he scored even 15 you know but uh, yeah I just think it's a lot of uh, the, these these losses they are they are such but they also you know when, you, when you're not getting blown out I feel like you could still take away a lot of things like oh well you know you can go back into the film room and look at the, those, those finite mistakes that you made and correct them um maybe there's a blowout in our future i don't know i don't i hope we don't have a dallas mavericks blowout like we did last season but um sometimes even those blowout games teach you a lot um there's just these growing pains i think is what they're going through we're eight and four so you know yeah there's still plenty of basketball to be played it's not something i'm going to worry about until you know we're probably at or just after the halfway mark. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's it's something that you can be we can be frustrated about until now, but yeah, we we have to we do have to keep in mind not to be worried. And then we just have to realize that you know, they are going through the film and they're figuring these things out and sometimes, you know, for a guy like Mike Conley who started out the season awful, just kind of had to wait it out, put in his time with the gym and, and he's coming out of it. He's, yeah. he's, he's doing fine. I'm not really worried about Mike Conley's offense anymore. Um, but uh, let's move to something definitely positive rather than just hopeful. Uh, Rudy Gobert. Uh, he, since his comment about wanting the ball more, he's really done well. Yeah. I, I can't remember exactly what game he said that after. It but his last Clippers, I think. I think so. It was right around then. I think it was after a loss, uh-huh. which that would have been like their last loss, you know, prior to uh, this Memphis one. So if if we're going based off that, since the the L.A. Clippers loss, he's uh, he's averaging seventeen points, seventeen point six points, fifteen point eight rebounds. Uh, he's taken eight, eight and a half field goals a game, roughly, which prior to that, he had only taken eight field goals in two games, two separate occasions. He took eight against the Lakers. He took eight, uh, strange enough, in that Clippers game that they lost. But since then, he's, you know, he's only taken less than eight once, and that was when he took two field goals uh, against the Bucks. Maybe if he had touched the ball more, they wouldn't have had to rely on a game-winning shot from Boyan. But, of course, even in that game, I, I shouldn't uh, just point out the two field goal attempts because he shot 10 free throws. So it's not like he wasn't doing anything on offense. So uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Rudy Gobert's offensive breakout? It's really nice to see. Um, I'm glad that he not only demanded the ball, but is taking and the advantage of the opportunities he's been given. I think, uh, you know, we talked about it for, I think, the first two episodes of the season so far is how 
you know, Mike Conley just wasn't connecting to him. He, you know, he obviously, we, we weren't seeing those lob passes that we saw all the time from Ricky. Um, but, you know, that uh, is coming back a little bit with Mike. He's starting to figure out what he can do with Rudy. I mean, he just gets to throw the ball up. No, typically nobody else is getting up there but Rudy. So he's figuring that out. But it's awesome that he's being forceful. And I'm not, he's showing these signs in the paint that I'm no longer worried that he's sealing that guy so deep because he busted out a few, like, really good footwork moves, man. Like, yeah. That was what he did. Um, who was it against? I don't even remember. It was like a double – it was like a, a du- – I can't even think of the word right now. But it was up like and a, under? Was yeah, up double and up and under, and he just – it was beautiful. It was yeah. like – I was so impressed. Um, it's it, – it, it's another level to him that we've been waiting to see. I, I just hope that we can see more of it because Rudy always, like, when he busts these things out, it's always a surprise. And you're just like, oh, Rudy, all right. But to keep that going, it's going to be awesome. I mean, he right now he's averaging, what, 13.7 points a game so far this year? So yeah, it's, it's somewhere around his career high. I think last year he was somewhere in the 13-point range, so I don't know if it is a career high, but it's 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 close. Yeah, and if he keeps Actually, this no, up... We well, know he was at 16 last year. 16, yeah. If he keeps this up, I mean, he he could very well be one of those guys that could average 20-20. Yeah, we'll see if, if he can continue to make this improvements. He's getting closer to 30, so improvements are going to be fewer and further between. But yeah, th- those, those subtle things you mentioned, you know, footwork and hands and, you know, the ability to finish when you get the ball in the paint no matter where you're at just finish that's really catching on from him. it's it's the difference between him being just a deandre jordan clone versus him being you know deandre jordan 2.0 you know better defense better offense you know not just this you know another rim roller on offense the mm-hmm. way clint capello is and you know a few other uh centers in this league and it was something that made Derek Favors pretty good because he had a decent enough post game that he was able to bully through guys and uh, get some points in addition to being a really good pick and roll player. And just one thing with the offense, you know, I think one of the adjustments Rudy Gobert was kind of going through and that he was obviously frustrated by is just that, you know, his role is to be, you know, a big screen assist guy. They run that high pick and roll or just that high screen. And before you had Donovan Mitchell was the, you know, he'd get screen assists off of him maybe, or maybe Joe Ingles or some catch and shoot three point guy. But then suddenly in comes Boyan and Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell. He's screening a lot for those three. And those guys end up going to the hole a lot and just scoring. Cause last year he was at like five and a half screen assists. And the last number I heard, I, I have not looked at this again. It was like 8.6. So he increased by like three screen assists a game. Like imagine a guy increasing their assist total by three per game. That's a massive jump. Yeah. And I think a lot of his offensive touches, his role man touches, were going to those screen assists because, well, we brought in Mike Conley, Boyan, and already had Donovan Mitchell. So you went from screen assisting for some guys, and then being the role man when you had Ricky Rubio passing to you, when you had Joe Ingles passing to you, and also some Donovan Mitchell passes to you, and Dante Exum, you know, he went from all those guys passing to him to guys scoring. 
But I think now the offense, it's, it's one of those adjustments that the Jazz were able to make on offense that's made them better to where they're not just looking to score off Rudy Gobert's screen. They're screening and watching him roll, you know. And it, it's a thing to behold to watch him roll. And now they're looking for him. And they're recognizing those lanes that he has, those passes they can make to him where he can then score. And he's obviously improved as a scorer uh, off of that which I think that's an adjustment that the Jazz will hopefully get better and better at, uh, just as one of many different ways I think this offense can improve going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just for the exact number as of right now, it's 8.3 screen assists a game. Um, points off of those screen assists is 18.7. Dang. That's a lot. He's, he's a monster, man. We're, we are we are seriously lucky to have a player like Rudy Gobert because not only like is he, not only does he impact the offense in a multitude of ways he doesn't even have to touch the ball to impact the offense but he's also incredible at defense like there is a reason like if people haven't noticed outside of the outside of Jazz Nation at this point how ridiculously impactful he is on defense I don't like you need to wake up or something because I mean this guy can guard two guys almost all the time and he's gotten much better with his feet at guarding the three-point line like he deters so many shots it's not even just like the blocks that he gets he alters so many shots he makes people think twice about going into the paint or even taking a mid-range jump shot if he's there that outstretched arm is just gets in your head I mean, he is a he is an absolute force. Yeah, his block totals have honestly, I think they've been going down. They have, but as a per game for the last, I think, four years. But his defensive impact has not changed, and you can argue it's gotten better. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's insane. Yeah, and it it, it really shows. We we can transition a little bit to uh, uh, another topic here, and that is his backup. Or his backup's backup, uh, one Tony Bradley. And in the last podcast that we posted, I displayed my complete lack of faith in Tony Bradley. And the early returns, actually, when he was playing, were actually pretty good. He impressed. You know, for a guy who's a backup of a backup, he was playing all right. Uh, on offense, he was. He was good. I actually really liked what I saw on offense from nothing, you know, not really a star on offense, but for a bench big, he was good on offense. You got what you wanted out of him. You got the screens, a little bit of roll action, uh, even some offensive rebounding and uh, uh, some putbacks, even a little bit of pick and roll. On defense, I was not terribly impressed. But it was it was good enough for a guy who's going to play 12 minutes. You, know, you could live with it. Some other guys had to pull a bit of extra weight, but it, you were comparing him to Rudy Gobert's time on the court, which Rudy Gobert's defensive time on the court will make anybody look bad. Yeah. You know, the the only player who looks competent playing backup minutes to Gobert that so far really has been Derek Favors. That's that's pretty much it. And, and even then, there was a drop off as good as Derek Favors is on defense. But I think these last couple of games, I didn't actually get to watch, um, I think, these last two games. 
I didn't watch uh, Brooklyn or Memphis. Again, I have way too many tabs open. Well, it also sounds like you have too much going on in your life. Yeah, I'm covering college basketball right now. So. <laughs> and both of these games were on nights where uh, Utah State was playing. So, And, and they're both home games, so I had to be there. Right. Although I had a tab open on my computer and I was actually watching the Memphis game for parts of it. But anyway, the, as I was uh, getting to, the, the one of the complaints I heard a lot was how Tony Bradley was not doing very good. So granted, having not watched the games themselves or gone back and watched any film, uh, it seems like Tony Bradley's been struggling the last couple of games more so than the you know, expected struggles of a third stringer playing backup minutes. Yeah, I mean, he had the, you know, the first game he had to play was uh, against the Clippers, and uh, he thought he held his ground pretty well. And then the next game in, he I thought he did okay there too. But since then, his inexperience is really starting to show. Um, he is still very much a good offensive rebounder. Unfortunately, because of that inexperience, I mean, we knew this was going to happen. It's a trial by fire at some point. Um, you're playing with the you're playing with the stars. You're playing in the G League. These are guys at the same exact level as you. You know, arguably less or a little bit more than you. Um, so he, what was it? Someone wrote his back the other night, and it was just like, man. It's got to suck to get dunked on like that. It was DeAndre Jordan, actually. DeAndre Jordan jumped oh. over him and was sitting on his back, riding him like a donkey. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 these are things that he's got to learn. But it is frustrating because it puts a lot more pressure on, on Rudy Gobert. You know, it starts affecting his longevity for not just the game, but for the season. Rudy Gobert, he's, he's, they're all human beings. He only has so much energy he can give you. And if he has to be out there for more than, you know, 37 minutes a game, that's going to start to wear. And in that time, what happens then? Rudy might get injured, you know. Uh, and if Rudy goes down, who you got after that? I mean, Bradley can't be your starting center. And we got nobody to back him up because Ed Davis is out for, what, I want to say another two, three months minimum. Yeah, this is... It does get tricky because that's the biggest impact of the Ed Davis injury. You'd think having your backup center go down wouldn't be that bad, but you know if Rudy gets some kind of stress injury, and we talked about this our last post episode, which came out pretty much right after Ed Davis got injured, or at least the announcement is just that you know in the Western Conference where seating is going to play a huge impact because we're looking at a Western Conference that's going to be very clustered and very close, like mm -hmm. it has really the last few years. I think seating pretty much. Uh, you know, one or two more wins for the Jazz puts them in line for potentially making the Western Conference Finals, just based off where they end up with seeding and home court advantage and all that. Yeah. And heck, that could happen this year if they end up in a sixth or seventh seed because Gobert goes out for two or three weeks, and you know they they lose games as a result of that. You know, you're looking at playing, you know, a two seed, a so a better team on the road. That's that that's could be just a really hard thing to overcome. It could lead to this really hyped jazz team losing in the first round of the playoffs. 
just as a you know domino effect from this injury. Yep. So there's a surprising amount riding on Tony Bradley's back. It's not just DeAndre Jordan. There's the pressure of he's got to step up so that Gobert can play, you know, 32 minutes a game for the next two months instead of 36 minutes a game of high stress. If I, you know, he has to carry the defense, carry the rebounding, which, mind you, carrying the rebounding falls on a lot more. He can't carry the rebounding. We've got to have a lot more from other players because there are oh, two. Oh yeah, lo- no, that needs to be done as community for sure. Yeah, and, and they've done better, but the Jazz had basically two losses, pretty much as a result of poor rebounding. And they they picked that up. But you, you got to have all these different things to protect Rudy Gobert. We did what we had to do to protect Donovan Mitchell. We brought in help for him, and we need the help for Rudy Gobert to be there. Because we got rid of a lot of his help. You know, Derek Favors left. That was Rudy Gobert's help. Yeah, and I mean, so far right now, he's on pace to have his best uh, his best season. Uh, but I also pulled up minutes. He's, a, he's just shy of 35 minutes a game right now. This is a career high in minutes. Yeah, normally he's around, I think he's around that 32, 33 usually, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those minutes, they add up and... We'll have to keep track of how many he plays in, you know, November, December versus how many, because that, that number may be up in the 36, 37 range. So that's a worrying thing because, you know, again, as good as Gobert has been playing, I mean, you're right, playing him, a, uh, I believe you said, you know, just playing him too much. You know, that's, you can't have him playing too much. Yeah, seriously. I mean, and there are tough games on the way. I mean, Minnesota, we're playing them Monday, Wednesday. So, I mean, most of the time you can chalk that up to a win. But, you know, you can't – he's going to be going up against the likes of Carl uh, Anthony Towns. So that's not going to be an easy matchup for him. So what happens when Rudy's off the floor? Tony Bradley's going to have to take on Carl Anthony Towns. And that's another trial-by-fire moment. Um, we've got towards the end of the month, guess what? Five game road, road trip, Milwaukee, Indiana, Memphis, Toronto, and Philly. So I believe you're looking at, uh, Brooke Lopez on the bucks, right? Yes. Uh huh. So Brooke Lopez, Miles Turner, Jonas Valanciunas, Mark Gasol, and Joel Embiid. Yep. On a five-game road trip. That's quite the uh, murderer's row of centers right there. Yep. So, <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I hope they're up for the task. By the way, what the heck is with us playing Minnesota in back-to-back games? I swear we've done that every year for the last three or four years. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know. I feel, like, I feel like that's a divisional thing. I think that most every team plays – at least one or two of their divisional opponents like that because we did that with Portland last year too. We're doing it with the Spurs this year. We're in the same division. As, we're not in the same division as the Spurs. No. Okay, well then I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, because well, let's see, we do it against well, we do it like three times this year. We're doing it with the Lakers and the Spurs. I don't know what it is. Yeah, because we did it against the Trailblazers last year, and that that was kind of my first thought: was it might be a division thing. Because yeah, there's. The Timberwolves last, I, I think. I'm going off memory here, so I could be wrong. 
Yeah, I do remember the Timber the Trailblazers, and I swear we did it against the Timberwolves again last year, and the year mm-hmm. before that. Yep. So I don't know what's up. Yeah, I might have, I to, might have to do some personal research into that. Doesn't make any sense. I think we did it against the Grizzlies once too. It's some now it probably happens two or three times a year, but it's just a weird thing in a league with thirty teams. You wouldn't necessarily play a team back to back. Yeah, I mean at least they get a day off, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think last year they or one of the times they played the Timberwolves, they did it literally back to back days, and it was a home and away. Huh. Oh yeah, no, that was. It's just weird. The NBA schedules are weird. And they feel too long at times. Yeah. You know, there's people that argue the NBA season is too long. I, I honestly, I mean, I I never want basketball to end, but, I mean, that's just me. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a traditionalist in ways, just in the sense that I don't really want things to change, because especially something like the season length, because then we have to, Go through the whole transition. We have to talk about, you know, different league records and yada, yada, yada. And yeah, just way too many things have to change. For sure. Something something that fundamental changing about the, about the league. But let, let's talk about, we'll probably go through at least one more topic today. And that is Dante Exum. As I said before, we started recording the 18th return of Dante Exum. I don't know if that's an accurate number, but that's kind of what it feels like. Just definitely again. not accurate. <laughs> well, just with, with how many times we've had Dante Exum, you know, the return of Dante Exum, when we had an episode entitled the return of Dante Exum last year, and there probably should have been one the year before that. Just every year there's a return of Dante Exum. And I don't know, I felt like last year we said this was the year. You know, last year we were going into saying this is the year he has to prove himself. And we're doing it again. You know, we're seeing stuff on Twitter like this is the make or break year for Dante Exum. Heck, mm-hmm. I think I made the joke last year that it was his third make or break year. Now we're in his fourth make or break year. So. Yeah, yeah. I feel bad, though, because, I mean... Dante does work his ass off. I hear all the time from David Locke just how hard he works to get back. But and I know it's really like nothing under his control like injuries. Unfortunately, they are accidents. Nobody means to get injured. So in that respect I do feel bad, but it is it, it is becoming tiring seeing him go down because he can be so good. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, a lot of the people I'm closest to as far as jazz talk are really high on Exum. And to them, you know, a lot of the talk about Dante Exum him being injured is perceived as hate. People are saying, why do people hate on Dante Exum? And to me, for someone, I tend not to be outspoken about it except on this podcast where I take uh, mean shots at Dante Exum. You know, there's just people that are kind of fed up with the fact that, you know, we all know how good he can be, how good he could have been. But it's not going to be anymore unless something really drastic happens in the next, you know, year, basically. 
or a couple of years, because he still is pretty young. But yeah, the, you know, I think I said this before. If Dante Exum were drafted in the back end of the first round or the second round, he wouldn't be in the league anymore, or he'd be in the he'd be playing G League minutes with Tony Bradley. It's you know the fact that he was a fifth overall pick and had that potential that you know we hang on to him. And to be honest, I, I want the Jazz to hang on to Dante Exum because I want I want him to succeed because I'm another one of these people who've seen how good he can be. We've seen what he can do when he stays on the floor, but. This is a trend that has to end sometime, either with Dante Exum getting cut or him finally taking the monkey off his back as far as uh, being injured constantly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it just it puts every it puts all of us, it puts the fans, it puts the organization, it puts the team in this weird gray area like, you know, what are, what decision are we going to make? I mean, I know I've said it before, but you know, Dennis Lindsay wants him to be good he trusts that he will be um and i don't think that you know if this fails again it will be you know i think that may be the part where dennis Lindsay pulls the trigger on moving him or something i don't know but i want you know <laughs> we're going back and forth here i want him to be good i do because he brings another dynamic to the team not just defensively but also offensively. He is, I've said it time and time again, I think he has one of the best first steps in the NBA. Yeah, and even with all the injuries, he's not really slowed no. at all. It's not really affected his on-court performance. It's just affected when he's on the court. Right. Uh, which probably is a testament really to his work ethic and also the fact that the Jazz really keep him out until he is like 100%. Dante Exum never comes back when he's 90%. He comes back when he's 100%. Right, and that's the way it should be. Yeah, it depends on the player. You bring out Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell for ninety percent, depending on when we're when you're at in the season. True. And depending on the importance of the game, but um, mm -hmm. one thing I want to get into Dante X, like the you know, the actual X's and O's and actual impact he's going to have as he comes back, because I think he was like listed as probable, at least available for the Memphis game. Didn't uh, didn't play as far as I know. But when he comes back, one of the things that we're seeing with the Jazz bench right now is it is actually struggling to score. And you mentioned offensively, because most people think of Dante Exum defensively, and the fact that he's probably could be the best perimeter defender. I don't know with Royce O'Neal right now, he's having a heck of a year defensively. But his ability to guard perimeter players, Exum is is really good. But offensively you wonder if he can add a little bit offensively because we're not getting what we thought we'd get out of Joe Ingles in terms of efficiency. Emmanuel Moutier is a lot like Alec Burks in a way. He's volatile on offense, can either be really good or is going to be a non-factor or at worst, a chucker. Um, and honestly, outside of Joe Ingles and Emmanuel Moutier right now, who are you getting offense from? Nobody. Maybe Jeff Green on a good night. Which Jeff Green's good nights mostly happen in the first three or four games of the season. When he was shooting like 50-60% from three, now he's shooting 37. So that's a bit of a wash right now. So At least so far, yeah. And like George Niang is like almost nowhere in the rotation. 
Yeah, he he had the trust. You know, he was playing a lot more, I think, in the early season, and he's unfortunately played himself off the floor. He is, you know, a lot of people really high on his potential to be a good backup power forward, and he's playing like a G League player right now. Which is so, which is so bizarre because I, I mean, George Niang. One of the best things that he was doing last year is he was playing the game the way it was supposed to be played. He played it the way he knew he could play it. But, I mean, Quinn Snyder has this weird conundrum in front of him. He's got all these players that have demanded or have uh, received many touches or, you know, larger... Uh, stints on the floor in throughout their career some of them are not getting that some of them are not getting those touches the system just doesn't dictate for that so there's a big 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 problem with rotations however i want to make an argument here that why don't you until jeff green i give him like if i were the coach i'd give him like one or two more games to really show me that he deserves to be out on the floor playing with the team or you're going to go on the bench and I'm going to put George Niang in see what he can do because we all know that George Niang can play pretty good defense and he could shoot the three ball with pretty good consistency but then the other problem is too is where do you fit Dante in when he's you know ready to go I I think he's probably going to replace Mounier I, I think he should too but then, you know, Moutier loses that chance to get his minutes. And I, I, I like Moutier. He is a great offensive talent. But I will say this. I am so sick and tired of him just taking it isolation every single time up the court. I am so tired of it. That is not what this team is predicated on. And I, there's like it, it shot us in the foot in the Memphis game. He was awful in the Memphis game. Yeah, I think that's what you kind of had to expect out of Emmanuel Moody. It's why there were a lot of red flags yeah. around Moody. And, and it's why when he had that really good first game, people were like, oh, yeah, Emmanuel Moody, he's going to be a good bench player. I was like, yeah, but we knew he could do this. And you look at the shots he took in that game. You know, when he scored, I think it was 14 or 15 points. Like, those are not the shots you want. And they're the kind that, as a coach, make you pull your hair out of your head and go bald early, especially once they start being missed like they have. And now everyone's frustrated with Moutier because he's not making those shots. Um, so, I mean, your point is definitely valid as far as Moutier not fitting into the offense, even when he is making shots. So, And I think that's why Dante Exum really replaces Moutier, and it's why I think most people were expecting Moutier to not really play a lot because Jazz only need to go too deep at point guard. You know, Conley and Exum, that's fine. Moutier comes in when they need him. It was kind of like Raul Neto last year. He was a situational point guard at best like you know foul trouble type thing or injury or whatnot i think that's what moody is going to be um which I mean, is hard for which it's going to be hard for him to kind of wrangle himself like be able to take himself back sit on the bench and learn i know that the whole reason that he came here was because he wanted to be coached he wanted to learn the game of basketball from someone like quinn snyder i totally am on board with that great but at least Raul Neto played within the offense, and he made those decisions when he needed to take it isolation or just go full speed back on a fast break to take it to the hoop and get the bucket. 
that is completely different. That is a more mature mind doing and making the right plays. Raul Neto still made stupid plays. Everybody does. But Moutier continues to do these things that has been habitual for him since he got into the NBA. Yeah, and so I think putting him on the bench, I mean, kind of like what you're saying with Jeff Green, is that, you know, prove that you can be out here. Right now, Emmanuel Moutier is proving that he probably shouldn't be out there. And, that, you know, you get Don Texan back. You know, Moutier's only been playing because they've had to, because uh, Dante's been out. So when, when Dante comes back, he'll replace Moutier. And, I mean, as far as kind of Jeff Green and George's Nying, it, it's really just this, I don't know, you want to catch it a call it a catch-22 or a rock in a hard place because you're getting poor production out of both of them. Because Niang, he's, his lack of athleticism shows. Jeff Green has athleticism still, even at 31, 32, however old he is. He was always a good athlete, long. He's not performing either. Uh, so I was looking at the stats for the last five games. Jeff Green's shooting 29% from three. Niang's yeah. shooting 25%. Um, but there's a minutes discrepancy there, obviously. Yeah, Green's playing 19 minutes and Niang's playing 8 minutes. Yeah. Um, Niang actually missed one of the games entirely. He's only played three games. The DMP? Yeah, at least I'm assuming it was DMP. I don't know if he was injured or not. But, yeah, so it's... You do wonder because you're not getting production out of either. Because again, Niang was playing early on in the season. If if uh, if memory serves, because he had that uh, goodwill stored up from the season before, mm-hmm. where he was playing well and he was shooting great from three. Uh, stalling for time while I look up his early season game logs, and then he he just couldn't figure it out. Yeah, see, so uh, he played two minutes in the Oklahoma City opener. Not sure what happened there. Then he played 23 minutes against the Lakers, 15 minutes against Sacramento, then nine minutes against Phoenix, and then uh, yeah, he had a DNP against the Kings. Played one minute against the Clippers after that Phoenix game. Then he's played six minutes, 10 minutes, 11 minutes, and one minute. So he's kind of been going back between playing and not playing. It's just like nothing's happening. That's bizarre. And he's had two games this season where he scored more than two points. <laughs> so, it is interesting. We're, we, we've suddenly gone from having pretty decent backup power forward and backup uh, center uh, players. Although, backup power forward was debatable with Jay Crowder last year. But we're suddenly struggling there, where I thought we were actually going to have a really nice power forward rotation, especially behind. Next, we got Royce O'Neal and Boyan kind of, you know, double manning that that starting power forward role right now. And then behind them, what do you have? You know, Joe Ingles, anytime he's at the power forward, you know, we know he's not producing at all this season. Jeff Green and Julius Nying aren't doing well. Maybe the power forward by committee uh, experiment isn't working. Yeah, I, I something. I mean, something's not working, and I mean, I, it, it's yeah. so weird. It's just this. I mean, we brought Jeff Crane here for this very specific reason that he could play the three or the four, and shoot the deep ball. 
And, and he's was athletic, talking, and we know that talking, he can pass. He might just, and... Listen, What's they were talking about he might just be kind of the placeholder starter at four. Uh, not necessarily yeah. one of the guys, but like just kind of there, and then maybe either Joe or Boyle would come in and be that closing lineup. Like that was one of the potential roles we talked about with Jeff Green. And now he could, he's almost playing himself off the court. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, and I know that you know, f- for Quinn, he knows what Royce O'Neal is capable of. He knows that he's going to give him a hundred percent effort every single time he's on the court. But, you know, he wants him to be the starter. He doesn't want Jeff Green to be the starter. So, yeah, it's weird. You've got – it's just – it's really weird because there's – you know, Jeff Green has – I think he's averaged 22 minutes, I want to say, throughout his career. Uh, I think last year he was at 27 minutes a game. He's not going to get that anymore. And I know that, you know, a lot of it is just staying inside of a rhythm – to be able to produce that way and for Jeff Green that's not really what he's used to he's used to coming off the bench but he's used to being a more of a role player I don't really see him being a role player on this team I don't think that's how Quinn's trying to use him I mean so yeah he is averaging for his career he's actually averaging 29 and I mean even in years past he was averaging 22-ish in Orlando and Cleveland and you know some of these past places. He was averaging twenty seven. He was kind of a part time starter. He started like half his games last year, so he averaged twenty seven minutes. So it is a bit of a dip because this is the first time he's averaged fewer than twenty minutes a game ever. And maybe it is a bit of a shock to him. Cause I mean I've not followed Jeff Green a whole lot in his career. I've been aware of him. You you would see his highlights every now and again. Being an athletic guy, he had a few you know, post rising dunks and whatnot. And that was pretty much all you saw of him. Mm-hmm. But you do wonder if he is one of those rhythm guys because he doesn't get his rhythm. He's in and out. You know, 19 minutes a game, seventh or eighth man. So, <laughs> he's just one of those guys that if he was playing a little better, you know. Again, there's like five of these guys. If so-and-so was playing a little better, it would go a long way. Yeah. But I think perhaps right now both Joe Ingles and Jeff Green just aren't able to go from that starting role, high minutes, high touches, to role player and less touches and less rhythm. Because there's some guys that have been able to thrive in that role. They make, you know, an entire back end of their career out of that, or for some players, an entire career. Royce is going to make his career out of being a low-touch guy. And But maybe Joe and Jeff Green aren't quite handling it that well. Yeah, something. I mean, this got really, like, it's weird because I feel like, you know, we're, we're spending too much time trying to figure this out, but imagine what Quinn Snyder and the and the staff and the players are trying to do to figure this out. This is something that, it, it, again, we come back to this. It's growing pains. These are things that they will figure out. The season is still very young. We're not even, you know, three-quarters of the way into the season at this point, so I'm not too concerned. I, I want to stay optimistic and believe that they will figure this out, uh, either individually and collectively, and we'll be fine. I, I mean, the what was it? The Brooklyn game, I believe. Uh, Moutier and Jeff Green 
you could say that we didn't win that game without them scoring the way they did. So, yeah, I think it shows because one of the things I'll say is as negative as I've been during this podcast, I try not to be negative, or at least I, I, I maybe some not say negative. I just say I'm tossing around theories as to why things are going wrong mm-hmm. uh, instead of going right, like I'm hoping they are and trying to expect them to be. Because you are right, you know, we shouldn't be worried. The season is young. Um, I kind of lost what's going on. Okay, yeah, this is what I was talking about. You look at a lot of these games, the Jazz are showing. I, mean, I wrote, I actually wrote a an article for SLC Dunk about how this is, you know, there was room to improve, but this is a lot of the Jazz team we were expecting to see. Great defense. The offense is developing, but we're seeing aspects of the offense where, you know, like I said, um, with Donovan Mitchell going like 8 for 22 and them still beating the Bucks. You know, we're seeing good stuff out of Mike Conley and Boyan Bogdanovich. Um, and also, the main point of all this is they're playing well in the clutch. Mm-hmm. You know, for for losing the Memphis game, that was, what, the first time they lost a clutch game? Okay, maybe the second time. They, they've lost a couple of games by, like, one point. The Kings and the Grizzlies. But the Nets game, clutch performance. Bucks game, clutch performance. 76ers, clutch performance. Uh, the Suns, clutch performance. Oklahoma City, clutch performance. All of these games, like, I don't know how many I just named, like five? Where it came down to late fourth quarter, last two minutes, some of them last possession, and we're getting execution. It's not just necessarily one guy. It's not just Donovan carrying them. It's some of Mike Conley, some of Boyan, and like you mentioned, some of the bench players. And obviously Rudy Gobert and just go down the list. There's been clutch play from a lot of guys. I think that's one of the biggest, most positive things I would say about this one so far is despite all the struggles, they find ways to win. And I think that more than anything might be the most important thing come playoff time. Is when it there's two minutes left, it doesn't matter how badly you've played. You need to be the better team for two minutes. And the Jazz have done that at least five times this season. Let's see, let's do the, let's do the counting. One, two, three, four, five times. Yeah, five times. Yeah, and that's a mark of a good team. I, I mean, the experience is there. Um, like you mentioned earlier, they're no longer a young team. There's plenty of experience throughout the roster. So, yeah, it is a good sign. Um, you know, the Milwaukee game, we won it at the buzzer, but that was one of those games where the Jazz did everything they could to lose it, and then they wrangled it in for the last 20 seconds of the game to pull one out. So, <laughs> and, and that's the way it is, because there were times where the Jazz played a spectacular game the whole game, and then I think of half the ones where they, time, where they play Russell Westbrook, and Russell Westbrook goes like 8 for 30, and then he goes 5 for 6 down the stretch and wins the game. Yep. But the Jazz are being the clutch team now. And they'll play bad, but then they'll play perfect basketball for two minutes. Or good enough basketball for two minutes. Yeah. So that's about all we've got for this week. Uh, once again, my name is Jason Walker, joined by Trey Sanders. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Oh, 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 oh